What's the deal with fruit on the bottom? (laughs) Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is December 3rd, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Neil is out this week, so we have a special guest today. I am joined in studio by 538 WD editor Chad Matlin. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Chad. How are you? It's been so long since I was on Hot Takedown. It's such a pleasure to be back on. It is great to be on a podcast with you. This is very fun. The only podcast we've been on together was a fake Hot Takedown training (laughs) session. Yes, a fake one. In which we only talked about the Mets and the Twins. Which was the easiest podcast I've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) We mostly only talk about the Mets and the Twins on this. <laughs> That's one actually I've heard a little more Vikings talk. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually a really good point. Uh, Some Jets. <laughs> that voice you hear is Jeff Foster on the line from Los Angeles. How's it going, Jeff? How are you? I'm well. Hi, Chad. It's an honor, Chad. The hot takedown godfather. Uh, great to be with you, Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, I have to know how your Thanksgiving went. How did the turkey go? It was okay. It got good reviews. <laughs> it was a little dry. I, I, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. I feel like I hit that temperature a little earlier than I expected. So it threw off the timing of the whole meal. The humidity is different you know? out in L.A. compared to the East. Also, this was his first time doing it. I think it was because I didn't stuff it, properly stuff it. And I think that speeds up the cooking time. Did you brine it? I did brine. I dry brined it. It was good. It went all, it went all right. It went all right. You know, I, there's some things I would have done differently, Sarah, Sure, but I'm not going to beat myself up over it. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, there were two big Michigan storylines over the weekend. Michigan football uh, did not beat Ohio State. I don't know if you followed the game at all, Jeff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did watch that game. And... Um, you know, it's just it's like a reoccurring nightmare every year, every November. Well, that's comforting. You just go through the same. You have you have the same dream where you're you know falling or whatever. And, <laughs> and Jim Harbaugh is still your coach. And I thought it was going to happen, and then it happened. Hey, well, so that's. Do nice. you think you could do a better job than Harbaugh? No, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> Football's complicated. <laughs> In better Michigan news, the men's basketball team is. Out of control. They went from unranked to number four in the country, the biggest jump since uh, Kansas did the same thing in 1989. We're a basketball school now. We just have to get used to that. Impressive. But if you're a name brand school, going from unranked to a high rank is less impressive than if you were like Stephen F. Austin and doing that. Because there's such brand name recognition packed into the top 25 that it's like – the I think the the judges or whoever overcorrect. They're like, oh man, we missed a brand name school that's actually good this year. We better pump them up. No offense, Jeff. I fully agree. I, I think that's partially true. I mean, they did beat two top ten teams, and then they beat Iowa State, who's a good team. Also, sorry, Sarah. It was supposed to be like a rebuilding kind of reboot year, so I think that's why the pollsters were kind of overlooking them. And frankly, I was overlooking them. Makes sense. <laughs> makes good sense one quick bit of housekeeping 538 has new merch available on our website so if you're looking to buy a cozy sweatshirt or t-shirt for someone these holidays who might be a fan of the show or the site head to 538.com slash store to get some 538 merch if you're listening today tuesday december 3rd you can use the code 538 podcast to get an extra 10 percent off your order today Tuesday, that's the last day to use the code, and it's the last day to order to guarantee arrival for the holidays. So don't wait. Go to 538.com slash store. 
On today's show, we'll dig into MLB free agency. We'll discuss the foundry New England Patriots who have now lost two whole games on the season. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. A year ago, Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, the biggest baseball stars of their free agency class, waited through a long, slow winter with no contracts before finally signing deals after spring training had already started. The last couple of off-seasons have raised questions of collusion between team owners who are accused of holding back large contracts in an effort to keep down costs. There are signs so far this off-season that the hot stove may be warming up a bit with a few high-profile names already signing deals. So ahead of next week's winter meetings, we wanted to look at this year's elite free agency class and what we should expect from teams in the coming months. Here's ESPN's Jeff Passan giving his prediction for how this offseason will go. I think Garrett Cole is going to get a record deal and not just get a record deal, but smash the number eight years $280 million for a starting pitcher with the Los Angeles Angels. Am I crazy? Chad, is Jeff Passan crazy? Can we expect to see deals of that size after how reluctant teams were to lock in massive contracts last year? Sure, in the sense that teams were reluctant, but then they did lock in massive contracts. It's not like Bryce Harper didn't get, what was it, in the end, 10 years? Yeah. Something like that? Maybe it was more, I forget. Um, But it was a large number of years at at a very large amount of money. And who cares how long it takes? I, I, this, this like concern about whether baseball teams are quick to sign players or not, if the players ultimately are getting the same amount of money as they might have if they signed early, strikes me as odd. And, and I, I tend to sympathize with, with the players union in these cases, but it is the case that as information becomes more shared in any society, and in this case, in a small little subculture, which is baseball, Conventional wisdom will congeal around one idea, which is probably not to give huge contracts to a 30-plus-year-old. That doesn't necessarily mean collusion to me. It just means that people are operating from the same baseline. And then in a couple of years, someone will figure out how to reinvent that conventional wisdom and, and sign players in a surprising way, and that team will go far in the playoffs. Part of the problem here is the way it used to work is the big names would set – the market. So these guys would get their big contracts and then everyone else would sort of fill in behind that. So it's hard for players to know how much they're worth, I guess, if the market isn't being set by these bigger stars, right? And to my point, the market is now being set by stats or, or by formulas, right? And we know how much a win is worth, quote unquote, given how much money there is sloshing around the league. And so it might just be that the big players, to your point, the timeline is inverted or, or, or different because Essentially, we don't need the market forces to decide through contracts because the market has already decided through stats and through formulas. So really, a timing doesn't matter at all. It's all still happening. We feel like it because it takes so long and we want to know what these guys are going to get. But it's that's all. That's artificial. I would argue that from a fan's perspective, until March 1st or whenever spring training begins mm-hmm. for, for all players – who cares who's on who, which team, basically? Uh, listen, I'm on LVTradeRumors.com <laughs> as much as anybody else. But 
and A, the longer it takes, the more content you get, which is better for narrative, which is why I am a sports fan. And and B, the players all have personal trainers now. They all are able to keep up in playing shape, and it's baseball. They don't need to work on teamwork and figuring out how the, how the plays you know interact with their other teammates. This is an individualized sport that happens to be a team sport. They're standing alone in right field. They don't need to be on the team to get the chemistry down with the center fielder about how to call off a fly ball. It's not James Harden and Russell Westbrook. It's okay. You say that until two outfielders collide. And, Which uh, <laughs> often happens with the Mets. Poor yeah, Mike Cameron is really still good. has a concussion. <laughs> a really good point. Chad, I think you're 100% right. I hadn't really thought of it that way um, in terms of like the stats setting the market. I, I think the concern if you're Tony Clark and like the thing that will be addressed when the CBA comes up in 2021 is the older players because they're like – you know, Machado, uh, the older fringe players like Machado and Harper weren't going to like be on the unemployment line, you know, last spring. They were going to get jobs. It's it's more, you know, the Craig Kimbrell types, the guys who were asking for a lot, you know, and were also pushing their mid-30s who are kind of in danger. And I think there's really not much you can do about that because obviously, you know, the way – the front offices are getting uniform and how they evaluate future performance. And they're not, you know, giving guys a lot of money for what they did in the past, which is, you know, logical and sensible. You can't really question them for that. That's not going to change. So it'll be interesting to see, like, in terms of the MLBPA, how they address this going forward. So the, the Players Association is launching an investigation into possible coordination between teams during free agency. Braves general manager Alex Anthopoulos added fuel to the fire by saying on a call with journalists that his team is looking forward to discussing free agency with other teams. He has since claimed that he misspoke, but needless to say, the union and the league are at odds on this one. Jeff, how should we be thinking about this? Is it like tampering in the NBA in that it can't really be stopped and maybe even shouldn't be? Or is this an actual problem that we expect the union to fight? I mean, I think in this case, I actually sort of sympathize with him a little bit because I think he might have actually misspoke because he said free agency. If he had just said, you know, off-season plans, I don't think this becomes a story at all. I mean, because... He's also talking about trades. I think he even mentions trades also. And, of course, if you're going to do business with other teams, uh, you have to call them and see what their plans are. <laughs> um, but the way it sounds, it's the way it sort of can be interpreted, which is probably you know why it, MLBPA flagged it, is that he was like calling every team like, you're not signing anyone until January, right? Right? Everyone good? But that's really our interpretation. I don't think we really can read that far into that quote. So it's clear to me what's bad about collusion. We don't need to like go over that economic like idea. But I'm not sure what would be terrible about teams making explicit what is implicit to my point earlier, which is if the stats and, and whatever else are essentially setting the market for what a win is worth and a team and, and a general manager comes out and says that – then how is that different saying it publicly to the press, for example, than calling up uh, uh, Brody Van Wagenen and saying, hey, just, you know, you know, we're, we're thinking about paying this much for um, for for a win this season or for, for a one win above replacement this season. The distinction between telling your competitor something and telling something publicly, is it just the private public distinction? Is that basically what it is? Well, I think there are a couple of things there. I mean – you can have an idea of what your team is valuing 
how your team is valuing a player. But it shouldn't be the same as the way every other team is valuing a player, right? I mean, we have an, we standardize stats for players for us, but if teams aren't looking at that differently, they're probably doing something wrong. I mean, they should have their own ideas about what's valuable to them and given what holes they need to fill. Yeah, exactly. And, and just how they value. I mean, I think, you know, the, the league has gotten pretty standardized in that way, but that it probably shouldn't be given what teams need. So I think there, there's that. But then there's also the idea of if I'm telling you what, how I value something, what's the step there between? And you should not value someone more than that because this is what I'm trying to pay this guy. I mean, you can put stuff out there in the media and obviously they do that, but it's a little bit different than saying, this is the ceiling, don't f*** me. Right. Oh, and- whoops, sorry about that. <laughs> and Bleeper. This is how I talk to Chad. <laughs> <laughs> but not Neil. Not Neil, though. You would never swear No, Neil. Neil, yeah, Neil, Neil has no patience for it. <laughs> um, but to, Okay, so I, I take my point that my question was dumb. Um, but, <laughs> no, but, but, no, no, it, it was. But I think what I'm hearing then is is this idea that like saying something to the media could just be a mind game right well oh we're really high on garrett cole well that could just be a way to scare people out of the market or, or whatever else but there's something different about the labor feeling like people are conspiring against you yeah i think that's right but also why i mean they're competitors why would any team be on like even if the brave cm did talk to the whole why uh, why do we think they're telling him the truth i mean why would you want your com- no one starts a monopoly game by saying listen everyone i'm going straight for the railroads and the orange monopoly and that's my plan for this game i mean like that you don't do that you you want to get a competitive advantage on on the other teams you you don't want them to know how you value certain guys or how you don't value certain guys so i mean nothing will change the fact that these 30 teams are in competition with each other. So it's still early in free agency, but we have seen a couple of interesting signings. Yasmani Grandal with the White Sox, Mike Moustakas with the Reds, Kyle Gibson with the Rangers. Chad, are you surprised by any of those signings? No, in the sense that they're these kind of, not quite role players, but these guys who fit a specific need for a team. And that need is worth securing early, especially um, catchers, where to my chemistry point, I think catcher is maybe... The position where that does not apply is, is you do want those catchers talking to the pitchers and, and understanding the rhythms of all that um, early. And so, you know, it seems like a totally reasonable thing. Is if you feel like you know what a player is worth, you want to get in before the market really saturates for for offers for that player. And if you're willing to overpay by by three five million because that's a really important piece for your team, then this is this is the moment to do it. So you don't think this tells us really anything about team strategy at this point? No. But I'm just generally like the team strategy idea generally doesn't matter long term because in two years it's going to change anyway. Like what happens in baseball to me is not most interesting for the league-wide strategy around how people create teams. In the NBA, it's quite different, I think, because there's a salary cap and because draft picks are are so important and you have these sort of role players who come on on um, one-year contracts just to try and win a, a championship. The mechanics and structure of baseball are so different that to me, what I'm now off on my usual random about baseball, which is it's a soap opera. All the other leagues are 
network dramas, our, our premier peak TV dramas. They happen once a week. You watch it on, especially football, you watch it on Sunday. You think about it for two days after. What's the cliffhanger? What's going to happen next week? You talk about it with your friends. Then on Thursday, the previews come out, and then you start thinking about what's going to happen next week. Baseball is an everyday soap opera. It's incredibly boring unless you're paying incredibly close attention. And then every blade of grass matters, and it's so beautiful. So which Met has an evil twin is my question. Oh, Definitely, definitely, Pete Alonso. Like some, uh, just easy. And, 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 and that per- and that evil twin is like super smart, and Pete Alonso is just this like great galoot, and so it's a sort of uh, mix and match. Anyway, that's that's my usual rant. Couldn't you see that Noah Syndergaard was the evil twin, and then there's a short-haired, like glasses-wearing, clean-cut version of Syndergaard? Oh, see, I think Syndergaard is like one of those uh, superhero characters who got like injected with some fancy like scientific uh, uh, serum or something and just like became buff but he's actually a dweeb inside have uh, you seen pictures of him yeah, when he was you're, younger I you're mean, sort of he's... conflating a lot of different marvel heroes okay, there. Let's <laughs> this is too much too much synergy <laughs> it was a little captain here. america i do have the uh the mets bobblehead from last season of uh thor sitting on the throne from game of thrones so there's a lot i owe you so a brand new bobblehead i have it at home i keep forgetting to bring it in for you oh, that you. feels dated for both game of thrones and thor being a big thing <laughs> I know. And it was just last season. It was amazing. Can you believe Game of Thrones was a phenomenon? Sorry. I know. I was actually going to bring it up and say, yeah, football is Game of Thrones and uh, baseball is Days of Our Lives. And I was like, Game of Thrones. General Hospital. Okay. Sonny and Carly. Who are the Sonny and Carly of baseball? That's the real question. (laughs) Chad, we have to have, now we need a podcast about soap operas. (laughs) Okay. Wins above relationship. (laughs) Wins above relationship. Oh my gosh. Wow. All right. We're going to work on that later. Jeff, which free agent most intrigues you this offseason? Is there anyone in particular that you are really interested to see where he ends up? I would probably say Anthony Rendon. I mean, that's a pretty obvious answer as he's the best hitter available. But just what he did this offseason. I mean, I think actually both Boris clients on the Nationals in Strasburg and Rendon are really interesting to see whether, you know, Rizzo retains those guys after the great offseason and obviously winning the World Series or lets them go and and has to sort of um, figure out how to explain that to the fans, especially, you know, they did lose Harper also, although I don't think anyone cares so much. <laughs> um, but I think that's interesting for sure. I'm, I'm sort of interested to see what the Yankees do. I mean, I think a lot of this, you know, you know, free agency and Yankees are synonymous or was for a long time and and they often were the ones just setting the market i think they're going to be active especially with the starting pitching i think they're definitely going to take a run at garrett cole or strasburg and and maybe even another pitcher i think that this is the kind of offseason it feels like where they get like two big pitchers who are better than anyone else the mets or really anyone else signs. Um, so I, I'm interested to see how that shakes out too what's interesting about strasburg is he opted out of his uh next year in order to make more money. That's a kind of gamble to, that feeds into the conversation we were having earlier around where the market is at for older players. And that, to me, is the real stress test. Is You have a pitcher who's over 30, and that really is going to test the, the, the trends and the norms in the market, especially after the postseason that he had. You guys are both Mets fans, obviously, tragically. How could you tell? Who do you want of this free agent class on your team? We want them all. We'll take anything. Okay. <laughs> so... Who would be the best fit for the Mets? Anthony Rendon. And and you would slide J.D. Davis into left. 
and you'd have and you'd ship out what, what's the guy who didn't play a single game i've already forgotten his name from uh the a's jed lowry like jed lowry doesn't actually exist we can't we can't put him in the lineup so give me rendon <laughs> it turns out there was no jed lowry <laughs> he took like 10 at bats all season and he was hurt without a diagnosis for half the season so he's like the character who has amnesia. Ooh, like Jack. He's very smart. He's kind of like, uh, isn't he the Stanford guy who's, you know, crunching numbers on his I own? I don't care whether they're smart, Jeff. I care whether they play <laughs> and whether they hit. That's no, all. no, no. I was just trying to find him the right, you know, Days of Our Lives character. He's like the doctor that went missing on the on the boat trip. I, now I, I've never watched a soap opera. I'm, ma- I'm making up plots here. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> who, who should the twins pick up? I think actually it would make more sense for the twins to get a hitter like Rendon. But I that, just that rotation. They He's, just need pitching yeah. so badly. Um, I, they're gonna. I mean, I, I don't understand how Zach Wheeler is the fourth ranked free agent available. Sarah, I think that right there shows sort of how baseball's changed because a lot of what. The reason people are high on on Zach Wheeler because he has a lot of you know characteristics of good future performance, whether it's you know the velocity or the spin rate and that type of thing they're looking at, and someone who does have his best years ahead. So, do we think that MLB free agency is going to evolve in the next couple of years? There'll be a new CBA soon, which might address how many years of team control there might be for players, whether players can become free agents a little earlier. But what what do I mean? What would we like to see in free agency, or is the system working fine? You seem to be a fan. Well, the system isn't working fine for young players. We know that they are disproportionately underpaid given the value that they provide to the to the league from a production standpoint, but also from a marketing standpoint. The um, the, the the advertisements during the postseason were all about how MLB now plays quote loud, which was a euphemism for it, it being young. And and there was there were those commercials where it was the people in color with the with the black and white backdrops, where it was like the 1920s footage, and like that was all this weird coded messaging to older baseball fans that it's okay, the kids are all right, you are allowed <laughs> to like them, except baseball itself doesn't pay them appropriately. <laughs> I so, thought those ads were just trying to try to make Mike Trout's seem interesting <laughs> that's, that's the that, best that, they can yeah, come up with. Yeah, yeah, but exactly. he doesn't play the game loud it was no, actually exactly. counter to that's him. why every time he was on it i was like no <laughs> <laughs> um your tv all of a sudden went mute whenever yeah, exactly. he came on um but yeah so to me if the players union knows what they're doing they have to address that and and i think if you end up Distribu- redistributing the wealth down to the younger players then the market for the 30 somethings is really gonna shift because the teams well will either have First of all, the teams have enough money to keep to pay more money to these players. So they could just pay more money. That aside, they won't because they're going to try and keep up with the market. And even if it's not explicit collusion, the rich people will try not to spend that much money. And as a result, there won't be as much money for the older players to go around. And and the thing is that the older players tend to have more clout within the players' union than the younger players. And you see that across all sports where the people who are negotiating the CBAs, they're negotiating for themselves and not for the young pups who are coming up. Yeah, it was telling to me last year when a couple of the, you know, the younger players for the Braves got their big extensions and the reaction from other players was like, what are you doing? Like, knock it off. (laughs) You're screwing us all over here. Um, Those contracts were ridiculous. That sort of seems like what the CBA will address is, you know, what the age at which or the year at which a player can enter arbitration. And it's sort of a way of avoiding them kind of feeling handcuffed to having to sign these extensions because, you know, they're cashing in on, on their value. 
and and that's their only choice. But I mean, I think there's kind of a double edged sword because what you'll see maybe is a guy come up, you know, with the White Sox or the Rays or something, have a couple of good years, and then immediately go to the Dodgers or the Yankees or something like that. So I'm not sure the fans will love it, but I think it's it's more fair to the players, as Chad was saying, in terms of paying them for their value right now, which is the way the front offices are evaluating the players anyway. I think that's a great point because we like we we see a problem and we think, all right, let's try to solve that problem. And then there are going to be all of these unintended consequences that we can't even begin to completely work through. And so as fans, well, as a fan, I'm always very nervous about changes to the game in, in any way, changes on the field, but also changes to the way the labor contracts work. And because I'm, I'm nervous about what happens to my small market team and I don't want them all to be Yankees. What about increased netting down the, down the foul lines? That okay with you? Yes. Or does that make you nervous? Good. That, no, it makes me nervous when there isn't <laughs> no, no, no. any. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's a good change. That change is fine. Before we move on, let's hear from one of this week's sponsors, Candid. It's that time of year again, time to share smiles and good times with friends and family. And of course, to exchange gifts. How about you give yourself a gift this year? The gift of straighter, brighter teeth with help from Candid. Candid's aligners can help straighten your teeth faster and cheaper than traditional wire braces. Treatment takes just six months on average and costs 65% less. Candid's aligners are comfortable, removable, and completely invisible. An experienced orthodontist who is licensed in your state creates a custom treatment plan. They'll show you a 3D preview so you can see how your teeth will look after you're done. And Candid ships your aligners directly to you. Plus, in this season of giving, Candid donates $25 with each aligner purchased to Smile Train, which brings safe, 100% free cleft lift and palate treatment to children around the globe. Give yourself the gift of Candid. Go to CandidCO.com slash takedown and use code takedown to get $75 off. That's CandidCO.com slash takedown, code takedown for $75 off. We're all looking for ways to improve our health. Whether it's being smarter about how we train, making a better effort to get more sleep, or simply thinking more about our body's overall wellness, I know that I need to get more sleep and would take almost any I concur. As your close colleague, (laughs) I agree with that self Oh, no. What are you saying? I wish that you would – You'd work a lot. That's all. I would love for you to get more sleep. I, I care about you. That's all. Are you geez. trying to say I look Ooh, tired weird and all worn of a sudden. down? I was trying to say something nice and now, jeez. <laughs> well, today's sponsor could help with that. Whoop is a fitness tracker that goes Whoop. beyond <laughs> counting steps and provides 24-7 fitness, sleep, and recovery insights personalized to you. With Whoop, you'll get a daily recovery score- Whoop. That looks at biometrics like heart rate variability, your resting heart rate, and your sleep performance to let you know how ready your body is to perform. You're also given insight into the intensity of your training in real time, and you can track how strenuous your day has been. You can get next-level sleep insight with suggested sleep times based on what kind of day you had, track your sleep stages and cycles, and see how much sleep you got compared with how much you needed. Whether you're looking to be smarter about your fitness, better about your sleep, or more mindful of your body's recovery, Whoop has you covered. Whoop is offering 15% off with code TAKEDOWN. Go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code TAKEDOWN at checkout. Optimize your performance with Whoop. Whoop.
On Sunday Night Football this week, the New England Patriots lost to the Houston Texans 28-22 to in what was a far more lopsided game than the final score suggests. This led, of course, to a series of pundits hitting the panic button about Tom Brady and the Pats, including Pat McAfee on The Pat McAfee Show. Now, without those pieces that they just let walk out of the building and without their offense are struggling, can't help but go. Is the dynasty over in New England? Now, I have seen this story play out before, and I personally am not going to fall for it this time, but I want to know what you guys think. Jeff, this loss to the Texans was a little surprising. What does it mean? Does it say anything about the Patriots dynasty being over? I'm definitely not going to go down that road. Um, out of fear for your safety or <laughs> out of fear for looking dumb i, I you know it, it, how many times has this has been happening since 2014 it was 2014 when they were two and two and got blown out by the chiefs and and everyone was writing the brady had a terrible uh run of games and everyone was writing writing them off and they won the super bowl and you know last year there was a point in the season where they lost at miami and then got lost to the Steelers and all got killed by the Titans earlier that year. I mean, and people were doing the same thing and they won the Super Bowl. So you just have to be very careful with this. That being said, Tom Brady is 42. He's not Benjamin Button. <laughs> He's going to get old. Are you sure? He's as handsome as Brad Pitt in that movie, though. <laughs> he is. And I feel like we've this is sort of flashed so many times and that – you know, we we've kind of like lulled ourselves into this state where we're, we're we're not willing to admit that it is coming, but it is coming. You see what's happening, you know, with Philip Rivers. You saw what happened with Eli Manning. You saw what happened with Peyton Manning. That there is an end eventually for quarterbacks. And you know, if you read Bill Barnwell wrote a really long story about this on ESPN, there are some discouraging signs. I mean, granted, I think we've all admit that he does not have great help this year in terms of his receivers and no Gronkowski and really just Edelman and a bad running game. And they're kind of in some ways asking him to do more, even though he's probably at a point in his career where they should be asking him to do less. Um, so that is problematic. And and also the Patriots really haven't beaten anyone. You know, they, they won at Buffalo and they beat Dallas, who's not that good. Besides for that, all their wins were kind of not impressive granted they don't control their schedule you look at the rest of their schedule they have kc they have cincy buffalo again in miami they're gonna win two of those definitely they'll probably win one they're gonna be 13 and three we're talking about a 13 and three team and we're talking about them in the context that there's a problem with being 13 and three i would kill to have the jets be 13 and three it would be the greatest football season of my life. <laughs> um, so what are we talking about here? They'll be fine. This is the NFL. It is all a matter of perspective, for sure. <laughs> Coaching is important. They have the best coach. You know, it, it's more important than it is in any other sport. And they have a great staff. And I, no one is going to overlook them in the playoffs. They're they're still a top contender. Even if the Patriots don't win the I almost said the World Series. Even if the Patriots don't win the Super Bowl, 
it doesn't mean the dynasty is over. The Patriots have not won the World Series during their dynasty. Well, they haven't won the World Series at all. Oh, my God. Did I do it again? (laughs) Now I'm sticking with it. I'm not going to do a retake on that. The Patriots just have not won a World Series in years. And that shows that Bill Belichick's magic is wearing off. So – but my point is that, yes, it's the case that Tom Brady clearly is in in decline compared to years past in our 538th quarterback ELO rating. He is below even Josh Allen. And so – There are signs of concern within the Patriots, absolutely. But the Patriots have not won the Super Bowl before. (laughs) And um, let's say Brady does retire in the next couple of years. To Jeff's point, Bill Belichick is a good enough coach that he could figure out a way to keep winning and then the dynasty keeps going. Like I don't – I don't understand the obsession about trying to, to – it's like it's like all these economists who, who tell you when when a recession is going to hit, right? It's like they're trying to catch the, the peak of the market so they can be the one who said, see, told you, told you. But there are so many sports commentators and economists who say that, that eventually someone's going to be right and la-di-da. Maybe you then get a best-selling book. But does it really help me understand the game of football better to have a bunch of people saying the Patriots, you know, the dynasty's over, they've reached their peak. No, let me watch the games. Let me see what happens. Is it more about like wish fulfillment of all the fans who don't like the Patriots? I want it to be over now so my team has a chance. Like the whole AFC East is like, come on, let me in there. I mean, is that maybe what it is more about that people want to write that obituary so that they can go on with their teams being successful? I think that's definitely could be a part of it. There's also like a David and Goliath kind of kind of mentality, which is like they want to be the one who beat the, play, the Patriots in the playoffs. In this case, it's like if you go back to that 2007 season where they're undefeated and the Giants out of nowhere beat them as a, a huge underdog in the Super Bowl. That's like basically David killed Goliath. Then Goliath came back and killed all the Davids for like another <laughs> 13 years. So we've already had that moment. Like, I agree that Belichick's not going anywhere, and it, you can't treat the NFL like the NBA. If the NBA was like the NFL, it would be like, let's say Popovich and, and Brad Stevens were so good. It didn't really matter. All of a sudden, we don't really care who else everyone has because they have such a competitive advantage with such a good coach. Obviously, the NBA doesn't quite work like that. So you have to always keep in mind that the system is in place. I think you're right. And that, you know, with a different quarterback, they can still be successful. And even with Brady at 43, they can still be successful. And next year, even if they lose in the playoffs this year, they'll probably be the preseason favorites to win the Super Bowl in in 2021. We also haven't talked about the flu, which is that half the team seem to have the flu, though the Seahawks also half the team had the flu and the Vikings um, couldn't take advantage of that. Do we don't need to talk about that? That's fine. So it does seem to me like with the Patriots, it's a little bit like college football where like one loss seems like it's a season ender. Like we treat it in a similar way, even though the mechanics and structure of the sport are radically different. But because they are the Goliath it feels like, well, when Alabama lost their first game of the season, whenever, whenever that was, it was like, oh, a gasp, you know, went through college football. Maybe this is the year that Alabama isn't good enough to, to actually make the playoff, let alone win. And then when Alabama lost a second time, that was Goliath being slayed, right? And there was this sort of relief that went through college football, as, as I could, could understand it. The Patriots, it's until they're dead in the playoffs. And, and yet we have this, season this this four month long primetime drama that we have to keep talking about all week long to my earlier metaphor and so what else are we going to talk about i do th- i think there's something there's something there when a team that has been so successful isn't for whatever reason i mean we've 
you know, the Golden State is a great example of that in the NBA. They were always going to regress this year. And then all the injuries and people are loving talking about this team that is terrible, even though. And that was such a swift decline. Right. Yeah. There are lots of bad teams in the NBA that we don't talk about all the time. We obviously have to talk about the Knicks all the time because they're hilarious, but other teams that are losing a lot. But we talk about Golden State because of how good they were. And so I think people are ready for those takes to talk about the Patriots dynasty in the past tense and and analyze it from that view. And they just keep going on and keep being really successful and keep going to the Super Bowl. (laughs) Because like if you think about existentially, which is sort of, again, the role that I'm playing today, of what like a take is, right? What What is it that we gain from take culture in sports? It's it is this sort of renewal of things to think about when the games aren't on. And I think with the Patriots, there is a real incentive to keep thinking about them because they have been so good, right? It's a way to understand their their excellence to think about their downfall. Well, there are two things. I'm very interested in how long Brady can play. Because a quarterback has never been this good for this long. Even this year, even in a down year, he is still an above average quarterback, which is kind of amazing. Though, I take that point. Drew Brees is, is also that. And that's what's also wild is like the Patriots end up blotting out the sun where yeah, yeah, like yeah. you can't see any of the other planets that are in front of it. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. The other thing I'm interested in is when Brady is done. To see how Belichick coaches, whether it was the combination of the two of them or if Belichick is, is, you know, can rebuild a team with a new, uh, new quarterback. That is fascinating to me. So I would like to get to that point because we just keep having the same kind of seasons over and over where the Patriots are good, then they're bad, everyone freaks out, then they're good again, then they win the Super Bowl. (laughs) It's like, I'd like to go on to, let's have them actually be bad. I want that to happen. So I think there's a little bit of that too in all of these. R.I.P. Pat's takes that people want to see what happens next. The Patriots are still the number two seed in the AFC. <laughs> they're they're behind the Ravens who are but having an incredible done. year. Yeah, but they are still the number two seed. Our our model dropped them by twenty six elo points, which reduced their chance to win the Super Bowl from twenty two percent to fifteen percent. Oh no, fifteen <laughs> percent to win the Super Bowl. Whatever will they do? To Jeff's point, I would I would take that. For what it's worth, if they win out, and granted they have a, a tough game against Kansas City next week, they go up to 22% again to win the Super Bowl according to our model. And so it's like it's not like that was somehow an irrecoverable hit. Jeff, when we did our Super Bowl team draft a couple of weeks ago, you took the Pats number one. How, how, how are you feeling <laughs> about that pick? Are you feeling good about it still? I, I feel great about that pick because, you know – like anyone who's good at fantasy or, or really any kind of draft in real life, I was efficient because I played the market. I didn't I didn't play the board. You know, I, that's not the expression, but it sounds good. Jeff, if you want, when when you die, I can be in charge of putting your obit together. And the first line can be, he played the market, not the board. You should. I think that's what most Great. people will know me by. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to your wife. I, I, if I could do it over, I think the Ravens are probably number one, but I ended up with both teams, to my credit. I, I said this in our Slack chat on Monday, and I'll say it again. I will say it over and over again. I will believe the Patriots are out of it when both Bill Belichick and Tom Brady are sitting on a beach somewhere while NFL games are still being played, and not a moment before that. Let's pause for another word from a sponsor, LinkedIn. Chad, would you Ooh, do the honors here? Yeah. I used to host Hot Take Down for new listeners. And I'm sort of nostalgic for for the days of reading the ads. And so I figured we'd give Sarah's vocal cords a rest because you may not know this, but Sarah's a great singer. 
Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often do not have. I know that when we hire at 538, it is a time-consuming task, and urgency can be your enemy when it comes to finding candidates who are truly meant for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for. Your job gets in front of qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly so you can hire the right person fast. It is no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn and why companies rate LinkedIn Jobs is the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash pain. That is not my last name. That is Neil's last name, P-A-I-N-E. Again, that is linkedin.com slash pain, P-A-I-N-E, to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Chad, uh, it is a long tradition that when someone joins our podcast, they they get to do the, the rabbit hole. So please, take it away. Thanks, Sarah. So today's rabbit hole starts in a tragic way, hopefully resolves in a less tragic one. A rock climber named Brad Gobright died in Mexico uh, in a climbing accident last week. He was known as a, as a free soloer, which anyone who's seen the, the documentary Free Solo with Alex Hunold might recognize this is when you climb without ropes. It's just you and yourself and maybe a bag of chalk. In this case, though, Gobright died not free soloing. He died um, because of a rope accident. He uh, died while rappelling and, and he didn't tie off the bottom of the rope and so the rope slipped through uh, the, the 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 rappel unit and then he fell to his death and someone who was with him survived uh, who also fell and what got me interested about Gobright wasn't just his tragic circumstances but also the sort of climbing life that he led and and what it tells us about where climbing is at as a as a sport um, as it gets ready for the Olympics in in 2020 Gobright once held the speed record on the nose which is this very famous climbing route in Yosemite's 3,000 feet tall, it's polished granite, all the sort of hallmarks of Yosemite climbing on, on El Capitan. And it was just over two hours, his, um, his record. The first speed record was set, as I go down the rabbit hole here, um, just over 10 hours in 1986 by this guy, Pete Croft. And so you have this sort of, um, remarkable development in 30-something years, um, where it went from uh, just over 10 hours to just uh, over two. There's a new, new movie coming out about the race for the speed record um, on, on the nose, and it was just broken by by Alex Honnold, who I mentioned earlier, and Tommy Caldwell, Caldwell and it was a sub-two-hour climb, which was sort of in the climbing world apparently is like a, a sub-two-hour marathon or something like that. But what got me interested in all that is that speed doesn't matter in climbing, which is like there's a push for climbing to embrace speed in part because of things like the Olympics, which I'll get to in a second. But the sort of classical idea of climbing is that you look at a rock face and you're like, oh, I wonder if I could get up that. Can I do it? And which got me interested in who first climbed the nose before all these dudes started trying to do it as fast as possible. And very surprisingly, it wasn't a dude, which is sort of rare in the climbing world. It was uh, a woman named Lynn Hill. She was the first to climb it freely or free ascent, which means there, she, there wasn't any extra gear put into the wall that she didn't take with her at the end. And so climbers in the old days used to bolt 
things into the wall. These are called pitons or pitons. Um, and they would stay there and other climbers could use them later. But you could rest on them. The whole idea of, of free ascents is that you're only resting on things you yourself have put in the wall and the rope. Anyway, this woman, Lynn Hill, was on David Letterman a few years before she um, went up the nose. Um, and the clip is remarkably... 80s in all the bad ways. Gentlemen, please welcome the best rock climber in the world, Lynn Hill. Hi. Nice to see you. So David Letterman says to her. Well, now, wait a minute. You, you actually uh, go up under and over that thing there? Well, that's what we're going to try to do tonight. You can do that? Sure. Oh, you have a lovely little outfit on. <laughs> yeah. Then the audience laughed at, at that joke. And, um, and uh, both of them are, are wearing a harness and you wear a harness around your waist when you're rock climbing. Hill put the, a carabiner on Letterman's harness, and on a harness, the, the the belay loop, it is over your crotch. That's just how it is. First, the audience squeals uh, when she does this, and then Letterman says, "Now do that again." When she starts tugging on on the rope, so all this made me sort of think about where climbing was and where it's come, and it's just as broy now as as it was before, which makes um, you know Hill's accomplishment even more remarkable i think that she was sort of trailblazing and you have female athletes now who have sponsorships and but the records and the the emphasis is still on what the men can do in part because of um this emphasis towards speed and i've been thinking about the speed versus accomplishment part of it um in part because uh i was a rock climber um and didn't do nearly what go bright or or hill did but but i I had a kid earlier this year and had to confront what to do with rock climbing like should i keep going and and um given its its risks and life insurance is very hard to come by when you're a rock climber and i've sort of tailed off of it and and i'm interested in whether how the olympics will affect my relationship with it especially as it goes towards speed which i've never cared about what's strange about it is okay so if you want to be in a uh an Olympic sport or a sport that's treated at the level of an Olympic sport, you sort of have to find a way to bring competition in, right? The Olympics can't just have people climbing for themselves. They have to have some type of a measurable statistical way to know who's, quote, better. And that's what's so interesting as the Olympics expand its sport portfolio. You have some of these sports that it's expanding into. They have evolved as a culture outside of things like the Olympics. And so they don't have the culture of the best in that way. That's actually, it's interesting you brought that up because I was just thinking when I was at the Wall Street Journal, there was a story about surfing and how the Olympics were trying to add surfing, but there was all this backlash in the surfing community that was like, no, we don't want to be in the Olympics. That's, uh, you know, that's not what surfing's about. It, it It's not about, you know, gold medals and staged competition and all this stuff. So I, I do think, you know, it would be understandable for, for diehard rock climbers to, you know, resist this because you're, you're all of a sudden, you know, putting in a level of competition which maybe didn't exist. It's about competing with yourself, really. And you see a lot of that in free solo, too. I mean, it's really just about him and the the weight of the expectations he's putting on himself. What's interesting in the Olympics, too, is the event that's going to be staged is a combined event about a, of a bunch of different disciplines. And the different disciplines all have different athletes who are the best at them, in part because different body types do them better. And so in something like downhill skiing, you have a combined event, which certain athletes excel at. But is a mix of the uh, what is it slalom and, and downhill or whatever. But those events are also staged for climbing in 2020. That's not going to be the case. And so you have an, a further bastardization of the sport because it's 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 not 
meeting the athletes where they're at and how they actually train and, and go about it. You talk about speed and then there's also the free solo. They, they haven't combined speed and free solo yet because that feels like a terrible idea. Because when I was watching free solo, my, I was just saying to myself the whole time, take your time. <laughs> Not to my knowledge. Stay up there as long as you want. And, you know, make sure you got it right. It would seem crazy to combine those. Yeah, not to my knowledge. But the thing about free soloing is that the people who do it say they do it and partially they don't have to bring so much crap with them. Because you're, if you're climbing with a rope and gear, it's very heavy, which, which causes complications. You have to stop in order to set certain things up. And the joy of free soloing, for those who do it, they say is that they can climb unencumbered. And so they're able to climb more quickly just naturally. But there is not a competitive edge to it aside from have you done this free soloing. And, and the other weird thing is like once someone free solos a route, do you really need to free solo the same route to get back to the sort of accomplishment idea? Yeah, go do something else. I mean, climbing to, to me is as close as you get to like terrestrial space travel where it's like, oh, there's the moon. We should figure out how to figure out how to get to it. Oh, there's a peak of a, of a rock face. Let me figure out how I could get up it. It's a little bit interesting. The Olympic component. The more I think about it, the more it seems a little like gymnastics to me in that you, you can't, I mean, there are obviously Olympic sports where you're just running faster than someone else, swimming faster than someone else, whatever. Gymnastics have to be judged and there are weird, intricate rules to that that sometimes make sense and sometimes don't. But it's a different kind of competition. So I wonder if the first time gymnastics were included, if the first gymnast was like, I don't know, I'm flipping for me. I don't yeah. I don't need someone to judge my flips. Um, There's your Oprah sign of your obit. I'm flipping for me. I'm flipping for me. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that rabbit hole, Chad. I think we will we will leave that there. That will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. For Chad and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.